think uh, exclusively about that or about um, what eldership is or any of those things, which we could have done. I wanted rather to just step back and consider, um, consider what service to Christ is about in a more general sense. Um, this is one example of Luke serving Christ in one, just one dimension of his life. There are many ways in which he's seeking to serve the Lord. But a Christian is, you know, as Paul opens the letter to the Romans, he says, Paul, a slave of Christ. When he became a believer in Jesus, he felt that somehow the Lord had stamped ownership upon him in a way that he could say, my life is no longer my own. I live for, for him. I live for Jesus. And uh, I don't think that that's something that's exclusive to men like the Apostle Paul, as though his, um, his great distinct calling to, as an apostle to the Gentiles made him alone this kind of um, servant of the Lord, but rather that every believer lives with that sense that my life is here to offer Jesus obedience, to offer him service, to offer him everything that I am and everything that I have. One of the most extraordinary privileges of the Christian life, one of the most striking realities uh, when you really think about it, is the fact that God, in his own wisdom that I cannot understand, chooses to use people like you and me in the work that he's accomplishing on the earth. And I say that that's surprising, incomprehensible, and, and amazing, because the fact is he doesn't need us, right? There's no sense in which God needs us. And yet he chooses to use us, and not just in a token way. When my wife is preparing dinner, in order to stop my daughter getting into trouble, she'll often recruit her to start chopping something. She'll chop like one carrot very slowly whilst picking her nose, so it's unusable anyway. But, and by the end of it, so it's unusable, it's, just, it's, just, it's basically just occupying her time, doesn't benefit the family. You think, is that the way in which God uses us as we serve him? And of course, that's not, that's not it at all. Even though we are so unqualified, even though we're so often stupid and foolish and weak and everything that's wrong with us, God gives us the great dignity and the great privilege of having a meaningful role and purpose within his greater plans. And I find that utterly breathtaking. I find it extraordinary that there are things you can do in your life for which God will give you affirmation in eternity. And I know that some of you probably are not Christians. Some of you are thinking about the Christian faith and looking in, as it were, from the outside. And uh, I know that one of the great challenges uh, in life in general, is understanding your purpose, isn't it? And many people often, moments in life, when you, you reach certain peaks, it's often either in your mid-twenties and later in middle age, you reach moments of this existential crisis where you're thinking, what am I here for? Because without a greater story that you're part of, of course, the question of purpose is, almost, is, is unanswerable. It's very hard to place yourself within... Um, within a story that, that has any end that makes any sense unless you know God. And so by talking through this theme, I hope that you'll have something of an outsider's window in to what it is that gives Christians a sense of the dignity and the purpose of the meaning of everyday life. Why you do what you do. 
Why you do your work for the glory of God. Why you serve him in all kinds of ways. Why you want to love your neighbor. and Why you want to be generous and kind. And why you're seeking to obey him and, and put to death um, the, the, the sins of the flesh, as the Bible calls it. Why you're bringing your life to him every day as a sacrifice of worship. Why is it that a Christian wants to live that way? Why is it that if you are... You are, you are um, doing the incomprehensible and, and taking directions and decisions which uh, no one would have thought were right for you, but you're doing it in service to the Lord. Why is it that you do it? And the answer is because he cares, because he loves. He loves to use us. So thinking about that then, let's read this passage. Verse 14, he'd just begun that chapter by saying that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, and he uses various parables to describe it. And so then he says, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Uh, to one he gave five talents, a talent being a measure of money, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He, had, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to, uh, give it to the one, him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." it's clear remember at this point in Matthew's gospel we're approaching the end of Christ's time on earth and as it comes to that kind of crescendo moment at the end of the gospel these parables therefore have an extra weightiness because Jesus is impressing upon his disciples what is of utmost importance and utmost urgency for them going forward without his presence and it seems to me that he wants to, them to grasp, and it's the same, I believe, even right now, what he wants you to grasp is the priority of living a life of service to him. And there's a few reasons why I think that's so vital for us to wrestle with. 
One is, of course, when you consider the shortness of the time you have. I'm a person who's given to uh, procrastination from time to time. It's one of my most embarrassing traits. And, but I know I'm not the only one. I know many of you know exactly what that's like. But the fact is that many people who are Christians procrastinate on a grand scale in terms of thinking, I'll put it off, I'll put it off, I'll put it off, rather than recognizing, no, the days are short, and Christ has called me to live for him in the here and the now. How can I do so? There's a psalm which says, teach me to number my days that I may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, teach me to recognize that my days are finite. There's an end coming, so that I will live in the light of that reality in a wise way, considering the time, considering what God has given me to do. The time is short. There's also a sense in which we need to be conscious that there is a system, if I can put it this way, of accountability in life, in the sense that um, what's evident from the parable and what's evident from Jesus' teaching elsewhere is that he is interested in how you spend your life. I don't want to stress that. That's not my main theme today, but I think there is a sense in which we have to be conscious of the reality of one day being with Jesus, of facing him, and of his care, his interest in how we are living. I think most important of all, though, we have to stress the reason why this is a priority is because Christ is so absolutely worth it. And uh, the Christian isn't driven by those sort of negative motivations. He's driven by that compelling desire to please the Lord. Remember how Paul puts it, that we offer our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. We love to know that the Father smiles upon us. We love to know that those things done for his glory bring him pleasure and thankfully you know this is the point thankfully when we think about what it means to live for jesus and in his kingdom we don't have the sense of futility that you may have experienced if you've ever worked for a bad boss or an organization that you don't enjoy or being a part of you know how you can you can feel demotivated getting up in the morning or going to work in the morning because you think i don't really believe in what's going on or i don't really want to support the what my boss is 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 up to But the Christian doesn't live with that sense. The Christian lives within such an extraordinary um, sense of the the greatness of what Christ is doing in the earth that stretches across millennia and of his absolute worthiness as a Lord and Savior to us and as a friend and a brother and everything else that he's described in the New Testament. That It it summons from us the, the yearning desire to live our lives for him. And so, friends, I want to explore this with you from this parable. I, I, I don't want to make it clear. I'm not only speaking about those things that seem to be more obviously serving Jesus, working and volunteering in church, though, of course, I called for volunteers earlier, so maybe this will help a little bit. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about what it means to live your whole life in obedience to him and for his glory in work, in marriage, in raising kids, in friendship, in, in loving your neighbor, in doing acts of kindness and mercy, in generosity, in everything. 
Let me show you a number of things that come to me from this passage then, which I think should, we should learn. The first is this. <clears throat> we need to be able to trust in the sovereign arrangements of God over our lives. And I stress that because of the, the very sad ways in which we can waste our time and energy in discontentment and wishing that we were somewhere else doing something else with someone else's gifts. And one of the first things that strikes you when you read this passage is just the fact that there is something very obviously unfair about the way the master doles out his resources to these various servants. He gives to one five, to another two, to another one. And then it says in verse 15, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. And I I think it's worth stressing this just because even though they're all different, they obviously have different capabilities and they're given different sums of money, yet, yet they have the exact same calling and they're therefore set up for different levels of success. I think that's a striking thought. Think with me about that for a second. It reflects the reality of life, doesn't it? When he talks about the, the doling out of the talents here, I think in a sense what he's doing is he's showing us that this is exactly the scenario in which we find ourselves in life. We're not talking necessarily about talents like gifts. That's not what the word means in this passage, like your abilities. That's certainly part of it. But it means in the passage it meant a sum of money. A talent was about 20 years worth of labor. So however many tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds you would calculate that to be. But it it is symbolic of... Everything in your life that gives you opportunity to serve God, your, your physical abilities, the relationships and doors that have opened to you, the education or um, uh, intellectual abilities you have, the resources that God has put in your hands, the people that God's put around you. It speaks of all of those things. And evidently, we do not find ourselves in per- on a perfectly level playing field, do we? In life, we find ourselves where some are at an advantage and some are at a great disadvantage. And it solves a whole lot of problems in life if you just come to a peace about the fact that God has ordained my lot, that he's sovereign over my circumstances. You know, to think at one end of the spectrum about, we have a tendency, don't we, to be envious of those who have extraordinary gifts. I remember when I read um, the biography of C.S. Lewis, what an impact that man made, particularly through the writings of his, his later years when he became a Christian, and how the combination of his intellect and his imagination led to so many people understanding the Christian faith for the first time. And uh, I, I don't know, it's almost incalculable the impact that he made on, 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 on the Christian world in the West especially. And and yet, when I read his biography, one of the thoughts that struck me was, you know, this guy, this guy was, you know, his dad paid for him to go to uh, private tutor education as a kid because he wasn't getting along in school. He was immersed in Greek literature and Greek myths from a young age, reading them like he was fluent in Greek. He was, he was absolutely, every part of his education was teeing him up for what God wanted to do with him when he saved him in his you know, wh- however old he was in his middle age, and then used him for his glory. 
And I asked myself the question, you know, will the world ever see another C.S. Lewis? So few people have that, that kind of preparation, do they? And we ought to give thanks to God when God, you know, you think he's a 20-talent guy. God just gave him so much abundant gift and, and opportunity, and then he used it for God's glory. And you look at yourself and you think, I'm, oh, woe is me, I'm so meager. And I think the, the point here, because listen, the, the one-talent man was held to account for his failure to do anything with that. My point is this, that we can waste a lot of time envying other people, feeling sorry for yourself, and creating impossible expectations based on an unrealistic view of what you could do with the, 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 the gifts and abilities God has given you. And it's never a right road to walk down. In the book of Romans, Paul tells the Roman Christians to... Um, Let me read it to you, actually. He says that, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought. He's thinking in the context of spiritual gifts there. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, he's saying, you're not all the same. You ought to take a very sober look at yourself and then consider what is it that God has called me to do. And I think this is extraordinarily liberating. It frees you from all of the comparisons and the envy that can be so crippling in life and gives you the sense of just peace under God's sovereign will. He put me where I am. He's given me these gifts, these abilities. I'll just use them. I'll do what he's given me to do, what's in front of me to do. Trusting him. Trusting his hand, of sovereign hand upon your life. Amen? Trust in the sovereign arrangements of Jesus. Then we need to think about the second thing. I think that this parable teaches us to become more aware of the tension between faith and sight. What I mean is this. If you ask the question, what is it that differentiates one servant from another in this parable? The answer is that the great thing which becomes the differentiating sort of catalyst in their lives that that causes two of them to flourish and one of them to absolutely fail is the master's absence. It's the fact that the master isn't present. Now, I think this is an incredibly important dynamic for Christians. It really, you know, just as in the story, these men are exposed by the fact that the master isn't in the room. And you think this is often true at work, isn't it, as well? If you've worked in a context where there's a team of you and a boss, how different the team functions when the, when the boss is or isn't present is a real indicator, isn't it, of the health of the team and of the health of the employee. You know, some of them will still knuckle down. There's a kind of a conscientious drive to do what's right and to work hard. And some of them are scrolling, looking at holidays, lastminute.com, checking Facebook and all the rest of it. And you think that, that's the real test, isn't it, of a, a worker's value and whether they really care about what they're doing, whether they care about the organization, all those kinds of things. And I think, look, bring this into the present. Bring this into our experience of the Christian life. How different would we be if Jesus walked into the room right now? What would your life, how would your life change from this moment onwards if you were conscious of his physical presence, of his eye upon you. Now, of course, Christ 
Christ's presence isn't like the boss that you're terrified of or anything of the kind. But just knowing he's there. And so this is, to me, one of the great explainers of why Christian differs from Christian. Because it has to do with this dynamic of this tension between faith and sight. Some of us have more of a tendency to live by sight, to live in view of the things that are immediate to us, our present needs, our present desires, and and all those kinds of things that are wrapped up in that. Some are drawn more to live by faith, to think about the will of God, to think about his desire, to think about his, what he is doing in the world, which, of course, is not visible to us. It's not in front of our faces, but it's just as real, if not more so. Think about some of the ways this might play out. To live by sight is more of a short-term way of living, isn't it? To live by faith is long-term in the ultimate sense. Christians have learned to think across, not just across long-term, but across eons of time. Because our story stretches back far, far beyond the beginnings of written history into prehistory and the purposes of God and into an unwritten future except that which God alone has in his mind and knowledge. And we find ourselves in the middle of what God is doing. And so our lives are about this unimaginably long-term way of thinking. That is what it means to live by faith and not by sight. When that begins to bear down upon your moment-by-moment decisions, you can see how that could begin to change what you think is important, how you make decisions. Sight is more concerned, here's another contrast, with the approval of man. Faith is more concerned with the approval of God. I think that living for the approval of man or what we call people-pleasing is probably one of the most basic drivers in life. And of course, we often would speak of ourselves, you see it as a fault, don't we? You say, oh, I'm a, pe- I'm a people-pleaser or he or she is a people-pleaser. But the reality is, I don't, you know, sometimes it's very obvious to see on the surface level, but I think all of us actually have that basic compulsion to live for the approval of people, even when you try and hide it, you know. Uh, People, it it, it can still work its way out on a deep level in your life. And, uh, you know, think about, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes 4 that says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. In other words, he's saying, every great endeavor of creativity and work that people do is basically because they're comparing themselves to other people. We all want to outdo each other. There's all this desire for the praise and affirmation of others. And just walk through the city with that lens and you begin to realize this is, so much of this is about that. We didn't care what people thought of us. No one would be doing half the things they're doing. But we do it because we hunger for approval of others. We earn great pay packets to get the approval of others, or we shun great pay packets to get the approval of others. But either way, it's a basic driver in life. That's living by sight. But living by faith, by faith is understanding that Christ's approval, Christ's Christ's well done. Remember that line that 
the refrain in this passage, well done, good and faithful servant. And that becomes a controlling dynamic in your life. I don't know of anything more powerful in freeing you from the desire to please men. And it's again just drawing out this difference between faith and sight. We talk also about sight is living for present comforts. And the wicked servant was chastised for his laziness, wasn't he? Living by faith is about saying, I'm not going to choose a path of least resistance. I'm going to... I'm going to work for the Lord. Let me bring you on to a third thing. We talked about trusting in God's sovereignty. We talked about the faith and sight. Here's the third thing that comes out of this story. Jesus wants your faithfulness much more than he wants your success. I think that this has to be stressed because our nature is to turn everything into a comparative, competitive thing. And some people flourish within that because we love visible success as a way of benchmarking our worth and and justifying our existence. Some people flourish in that context. Some people crash and burn in that context because they give up from day one. It's like when we send our kids, you know, in the park, they go and race each other. And unfortunately, Seth, being two years older than Isla, is always going to win. And they start two steps in and then she crumples on the floor in in a pile of tears weeping because she, she there's no way she can beat her brother and it's just like giving up from the start you think this whole idea of living for visible success either causes some to flourish because they thrive on that and others to crash and burn and I'm saying look it's just all rubbish what Christ is interested in is he's watching carefully for this precious commodity called faithfulness which is just basically faith stretched over time it's faith working its way out on a day-by-day, plodding basis. Eugene Peterson, who's been so influential as a pastor and author, had a book that's famously titled, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And it kind of captures what being a Christian means. It's like I, I, I settle into a rhythm of just walking steadily with the Lord. Some people are attracted to the highs, but so often they find themselves crashing in the lows. But the Christian is someone who's just plodding in step with the Spirit, offering themselves to God, and you know, not erratic, not all over the place, but just offering themselves to the Lord daily, faithful, faithful, faithful. And isn't that what the Lord praises in this passage? Well done, good and faithful servant. Those small acts of obedience sowed daily over time have reaped great things in your life. And now I'm giving you the affirmation of the master. He loves faithfulness. Here's the fourth thing. I think the great threat to serving God in this way, the greatest threat, the thing which is most likely to hold you back from serving the Lord in this way, is always fear. And it's particularly fear that's rooted in a misunderstanding of the character of God. In other words, an inability to really trust him. You see it coming out in the way the, uh, the, the one talent servant approaches the master. And verse 24 says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. 
And I think in our, in our day and age, given our sensibilities, the first thing we do is we feel sorry for him. Oh, the poor guy, he's got such a brutal master. No wonder he didn't want to serve him. He just pretended like he could just get on with his life and out of his fear. You know, you want to go and soothe him and give him therapy and, and get him, help him out a little bit. And the master just turns and says, you wicked and slothful servant. He's having none of it. And he asks this question, why? And I think the great answer to that is this. He absolutely misrepresented the character of the master. He portrays him or thinks of him as this overbearing, unkind master who wants to leech every bit of, uh, of productivity and wealth out of his servants and then just abandon them. And of course, the very opposite is the case. When the servants come to him having... having Having multiplied their talents and doubled their income, as it were, the master then affirms them and gives them, what does he say? He says, you delivered to me five talents here. I've made five talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He lavishes back upon them the very wealth that they've been working with, in fact, and says, carry on. You're doing great. You're one, I'm giving you more responsibility, more authority, more, 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 more. And you think, this is the generosity of God being depicted here. Now, the reason why I'm stressing this is because if you ask the question, why is it that you might struggle to obey the Lord in ways that in that moment might feel risky or, or threatening or um, costly or sacrificial? And the answer is always, because if I make this sacrifice, God, God will take it from me and give me nothing in return. So like you think about your, your wealth. You know, the reason we hold on tight instead of being generous is because we think, well, if I give it away, I might never, you know, I'll never see that again. And so we think about God through the lens of, being a harsh master. And this is why I think when the master answers a servant, he doesn't just sort of pat him on the back and say, I'm so sorry you thought of me this way. He says, no, you wicked and slothful servant. Because he's saying your fear is a moral issue in this situation. You absolutely misrepresented me. And that was a wicked intent of your heart. And I think to some degree that is exactly true for us also. Our fear, our inability to trust the Lord is a moral issue that we must do battle with. And God is calling you to obey and to surrender. And you're holding back out of fear. That's a sin to be repented of. Not a tendency to be therapized. Confront yourself. Say, am I afraid? Is it because I am not believing God? It's because I'm not trusting him and taking him at his word. Then ask yourself, well, I love this question. What would you do if you were not afraid? What would you do if you could take fear out of the equation and just trust God? Isn't that a provocative question to ask yourself? It's very, very vivid, isn't it, the picture of this man in his fear 
running into the garden, digging a hole and putting the money in it and pretending like there's nothing to do. With, he, there's, no, there's, no, there's no responsibility. Just, just completely, almost burying his head, actually, in the situation. I think that's exactly how many people live their lives. God's given you so many opportunities to serve him, and yet we fearfully just pretend like that's not our thing. God's saying, come and obey. Watch how I will lavish upon you more than you can imagine. Here's the last thing. You are, you're called to strain forward for the rewards that Christ offers. And it's just so clear from this passage and from elsewhere in Jesus' teaching that he is saying there are rewards for those who live their lives in service to the king, for the glory of the king. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. To everyone who has, it says in verse 29, more will be given and he will have an abundance. Now, it's an interesting thing that many Christians are embarrassed about the notion of reward. We don't talk about it very much. And I think part of the reason is because we think that somehow it, it feels immoral to live for the purpose of reward. But actually that comes from the thinking of the philosopher Immanuel Kant. It doesn't come from the Lord Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis very memorably wrote the line that if we consider the unblushing, you know, without, without sort of embarrassment, the unblushing promises of reward promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord, our Lord finds our desires not too strong. We don't have these uncontainable raging desires. He's saying, that's not your problem. Your problem is your desires are too weak. What is it then in the passage, what, do we get any clues as to what it is that God rewards for a life of service? And actually, I think we do. And of course, we couldn't necessarily take this passage in and of itself and stand alone and make a case for this, but I think it fits within the greater storyline of Scripture. that the, the reward that Christ promises for faithful service to him is the opportunity to do more work, to have more responsibility, to have more leadership, more authority. That's an interesting thing because it clashes. It comes head to head with Western notions of what the reward of a, a life well lived looks like. A life well lived in the Western way of thinking is the opportunity to stop. You now I work and work and I endure work so that I cannot work. So that I can eventually just go on a cruise and drink pina coladas and sit on a beach, and all the rest of it. And it seems to me, that, you know, I've, I've read at least that many people who then retire with those visions in their minds, you know, in the first six months at least, they had this great existential crisis because so much of the purpose of life was found through labor. And suddenly that stops, and you think, why am I, what, I'm a, why, what am I doing? What is my life about? I feel useless. And often most people manage to medicate those feelings and put them to death in some way or other. But I think in some ways they speak to us of the deeper reasons why we exist. It's striking that when you read the Bible, 
the gift of work is given long before sin enters the world. God calls Adam and Eve to have dominion on the planet. Of course, sin corrupts work, makes it a a more uh, toilsome burden. But the work in itself, the joy of serving God with the gifts that he's given you in whatever field he's put you, is part of the joy of serving him. And that is, it has an intrinsic reward. And it seems to me that the trajectory of that goes on into eternity. God's not just going to retire us when we die. But there is more to do. More lands to conquer, as it were. More cities to build. More work to be given to God. And that's exactly what this passage communicates to us. Friends, I want to wrap this up and just say to you, if you're a Christian, the fact that Jesus has saved you is something that we we must celebrate every day of our lives. But Being saved is not, in a sense, an end in itself. He saved you for purposes, for his purposes. Being saved is merely the beginning of the Christian life. It's the necessary beginning. It's the essential beginning. But it is just the beginning. And to be a Christian is to be invited into a life in which God's presence And his authority pervades everything you do. It's for him. And I want to just encourage you, as we think on this, and as you reflect on where you've come to at this point in your life, and what the future is looking like, or just what is tomorrow looking like, shall we say. It's enough for now. I want us to pray as we just take communion and just think about this reality. What does it mean to take what God's given me and serve him with what I have? Sometimes God calls for massive directional changes. And in my time of being a pastor, I've seen individuals make extraordinary choices in obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit. They thought they were going this way. God called them in this way. And they laid it all down, even years of preparation for that in order to do this. Sometimes that leads to painful sacrifice. But always on the other side of obedience is great joy. But I don't think it always looks like those huge directional changes. I think more often than not, it looks like the simple things of days lived for the glory of your Savior. Why don't we pray together? We're going to take communion in a second. And uh, there's something so precious about eating the bread, drinking the wine, recalling that even though we're called to serve God. And Paul introduces a number of his letters by saying, Paul, a slave of Christ. Even though God has called you into a relationship of slavery to the Lord Jesus Christ as a Christian, actually, every time you take communion,
you remember that you're serving the Savior who made himself the lowest of the low. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it seems to me that we can never outserve a master like that. It's not as though he would hold anything back from us. What a privilege to know him. What a privilege to live for him, to obey him, to repent of sin for him. So eat the bread and drink the wine. Do so with a meditation on, on your Savior, of his worthiness. Father, we come to you. We want to worship. We want to respond. And we pray, Lord, that you would continually help us to love your son in such a way that we will will not hold anything back from him but rather delight in the offering of our service to him and to live for his well done we pray this in your name amen amen